The uh, previous guest on this podcast, Two Pages with MBS, was Dave Ball, who I met at Oxford when we were both uh, newly minted Rhodes Scholars there. And thinking of that time in Oxford, one of the things I remember is that there were signs everywhere. Don't walk on the grass. Entry forbidden. Don't bring a naked flame into the Bodleian Library. And, you know, fair enough. I understand that last one. We don't want to burn down all the books. You've already done that enough times in our past. But I do remember how most of those signs made me feel, which is I wanted to rebel against them. You know, I kind of see the sign, don't walk on the grass, and I kind of do a little tap dance on the corner of the grass. You know, I would test the door that says no entry to see if it was actually locked, see if I could stick my head around the corner and see what was there. And maybe. This is what this conversation, I think, plays with. Maybe this was the artist in me. Maybe this was the maker in me. There's something about transgression that can be extremely powerful. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast, where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Stuart Semple is a British artist who never really had a choice about what he wanted to be when he grew up. It's always been like that. Since I was a kid, you know, I was eight, nine years old, and the thing that made sense to me was making work. And through all the weird, wonky teenage years, it was the thing that made sense. And I had quite a weird, well, very frightening near-death experience at art school, actually, and part of my recovery, my mental health journey was making art. So art something that I need to feel alive and normal and it's just something that I do. I just am one of those. But Stuart's not just an artist, he's also an activist. And I love how similarly these two words sound. Someone who creates conversations and debates around fairness and justice. I remember the first time I felt inequality as an artist. And that was when I was a teenager and my art college took me up to a very posh gallery. And I remember putting my hand on the wall to get closer to this artwork and the gallerist screamed, get your filthy hand off my wall. And I felt really sort of humiliated. I really wanted to see this artwork and I thought it was really unfair and kind of unjust and that art should be for everybody. And it really kind of stuck with me kind of emotionally. Art should be for everybody, even or maybe especially for grubby handed teenagers. Stuart was sticking his hands where society and curators said he shouldn't from the very start. And according to him, that's part of the course when it comes to artists. I think artists naturally are disruptors, right? Because we're, we're outside the normal social norm. At least in my day, you wouldn't choose to do this. You're a bit of a weirdo. You're, you're doing something differently anyway. But I think that really my work where it analyzes society and culture, I started to see problems and the cracks in that. So I actually wanted the work to be useful and actually have some impact in making things better. Others do sort of live on the fringes of society in many ways. And Stuart believes that position gives them a unique opportunity. I think if anything, I've realized just how um, much power artists really have and how much Mm. freedom in the West. I mean, I'm very lucky. You know, we have freedom of speech here. We have a human rights. I can make work about things that move me. I'm very lucky and and I don't take that for granted, you know, so that's an amazing thing. As the years have rolled on, I've started to realise that, um, you you know, art is a very sort of um, powerful form of activism, actually. And I've started to realise 
more about what artists can do, not just me, but as a collective, as a community, you know, how we can use right. our voice. So that's evolved. Yeah. It's really interesting, the sense of, you know, you use the phrase power and freedom. Yeah. I'm just wondering, there's a question there. I'm just trying to find it. Uh, what power do you feel you have and what power do you feel you don't have? Mm. Well, I don't think, you know, I'm very lucky because I have an audience and people know yeah. my work now. So that gives me a, a platform, if you like. So I, yeah. I don't take that lightly. That's a responsibility. So I yeah. have the power to communicate to a lot of people very quickly. That's partly yeah. due to technology. So I feel very grateful for that. And I have some experiences that I've developed through practicing my work for you know 30 years. So I have that. The power mm. I don't have really is a power over, I don't know what you could call it, maybe like authority or yeah. um, the powers that be, if you like. I still feel like in the society I'm in, artists are to some extent sort of looked down upon that there is prejudice around what we do. Um, yeah. So I hit that quite often. You talk about the the audience you've developed it's, there's a question here, Stuart, around how your audience influences what you do. Because my experience of a maker, my, being a maker myself, is you know the first things I make, I don't have an audience, so I'm not thinking about who my audience is because I have none. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, there's this kind of sense of expectation, which is like, okay, my audience is thinking this from me, mm. and I'm wondering, uh, you know, how your audience is a source of freedom for you and how it's a source of restraint for you well i think in some ways like i'm really lucky because i wouldn't be here if people didn't connect with what i make so i'm so yeah. grateful that I people understand what i'm doing yeah. so i have a duty in a way to that and i mm. i take that very seriously um but at the same time you know there's different types of art my work has become less about me and less sort of about making myself feel good and more yeah. about how I can serve and be useful. So I believe an artwork isn't truly finished till it meets an audience. I think art happens when people connect with the things that we make. So it's I half finish it. The audience bring their life experience, mm. their story, their interpretation to the things that I put out there. And really, I can't really control that process. So however, I do really care about them. And I yeah. feel like I fail if it misses the mark. So I don't really do it to please me. I, I feel like it's it's a bit bit more than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stuart, you've wet our appetite for the the book that you're going to yeah. read from. What what book have you chosen? I have chosen Patty Smith's book, Just Kids. Mm. Fantastic. How did you come up with this book? Because I know you're a reader. How did you end up choosing this one? Okay, so this was really hard. I read like <laughs> two, three books a week. Yeah, I have done for years, and this is weird. I I could have read anything, right? But this book, this is going to go quite deep, quite quick, or quite yeah. emotional, quite quick. Um, my mum died of cancer during the pandemic, oh, I'm sorry. which meant I couldn't see her. Mm. But I decided I'd connect with her on Zoom every day, and read her some of this book. Oh, and Gosh. I've uh, and the two pages I'm going to read. It's completely random. You see the bookmark? I see that, yeah. That's when my mum passed away. And this oh. has been on my shelf um, 
ever since. So this is a really important book to me. And I want to read the next two pages of this book as some sort of weird cathartic thing that I feel like I need to do. Because no other book that matters to me as much as this book. What a gift for us. And I so appreciate you choosing this for us with that story behind it. It's amazing. So thank you. So Stuart Semple, British artist, reading Patty Smith's book, Just Kids. Over to you, Stuart. And a random two pages, in fact. I know, which I, so, which I love as well. So let's see, let's see what it's got in store for us. I implored him to quit. His job and scant paycheck were not worth the sacrifice. After nights of discussion, he reluctantly agreed. In return, he worked diligently. Always anxious to show me what he'd accomplished while I was at Scribers, I had no regrets taking on a job as a breadwinner. My temperament was sturdier. I could still create at night, and I was proud to provide a situation allowing him to do his work without compromise. At night, after trudging through the snow, I found him waiting for me in our apartment, ready to rub my hands to make them warm. He seemed always in motion, heating water on the stove, unlacing my boots, hanging up my coat, always with one eye on the drawing he was working on. He would stop for a moment if he noticed something. Most of the time, it seemed as if the piece was fully formed in his mind. He was not one for improvising. It was more a question of executing something he saw in a flash. Existing in silence all day, he was eager to hear my stories of the bookstore's eccentric customers, of Mr. Edward Gorey with his big tennis shoes, or Catherine Hepburn wearing Spencer Tracy's cap covered with a green silk headscarf, or the Rothschilds with their long black coats. Afterwards, he would sit on the floor and eat spaghetti while examining his new work. I was attracted to Robert's work because his visual vocabulary was akin to my poetic one. Even if we seemed to be moving towards different destinations, Robert always would tell me, nothing is finished until you see it. Our first winter together was a harsh one. Even with my better salary from Scribers, we had very little money. Often we'd stand in the cold on the corner of St. James's Place in eye shot of the Greek diner and Jake's art supply store, debating how to spend our few dollars, a toss-up between grilled cheese sandwiches and art supplies, sometimes unable to distinguish the greater hunger. Robert would keep nervous watch on the diner while I, filled with the spirit of Gennett, pocketed the much-needed brass sharpener or coloured pencils. I had a more romantic view of the artist's life and sacrifices, I had once read that Lee Krasner had lifted art supplies for Jackson Pollock. I don't know if it was true, but it served as inspiration. Robert fretted over not being able to provide for us. I told him not to worry, that committing to great art is his own reward. At night, we played the records we liked to draw to on our battered player. Sometimes we played a game called Record of the Night. The album cover of the chosen record would be prominently displayed on the mantel. We played the disc over and over, the music informing the trajectory of the evening. It did not bother me to work in obscurity. I was hardly more than a student, yet Robert, though shy, non-verbal, and seemingly out of step with those around him, he was ambitious. 
He helped Duchamp and Warhol as models, high art and high society. He aspired to them both. We were a curious mix of funny face and Faust. One cannot imagine the mutual happiness we felt when we sat and drew together. We would get lost for hours. His ability to concentrate for long periods infected me, and I learned by his example, working side by side. When we would take a break, I would boil water and make some Nescafe. After a particularly good stretch of work, we would stroll along Myrtle Avenue, searching for Molimers, spurging on Robert's favourite treat, a marshmallow cookie covered in dark chocolate. Although we spent most of our time together, we weren't isolated. Our friends would come to visit, Harvey Parks and Louis Delassart, well, they were painters. Sometimes they worked on the floor next to us. Louis did portraits of us both, Robert with an Indian necklace, and one of me with closed eyes. Ed Hansen shared his vision and collages with Janet Hamill read us her poems. I would show my drawings and tell stories about them, like Wendy entertaining lost children. Stuart, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. What, what resonates in those two pages oh, for you? Mate, there's so much in there. I mean... Yeah. I love this moment early in an artist's career where you, you know, you have nothing but your art and you're kind of pinning this hope that it can kind of take you somewhere. Right. I think that's beautiful. And I think their relationship, the way Patti Smith is sacrificing herself in a way by doing this job to support Maplethorpe because she yep. believes so much in her work. And just this beauty of this moment in New York, these two brilliant creative souls kind of colliding. Right. I don't know. It's a beautiful thing. I can identify with a lot of that. I'm going to come back and ask you about some of the themes that we saw on the two pages, but can I just ask you, what's the gift your mum gave you? Love. Mm. You know, she loved me and um, she taught me about society. My mum was a sociologist. Um right. And though she didn't really understand what it was to be an artist at the start, she was very proud of me towards the end. Um, she taught me a lot. Yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge her, yeah. knowing the role this book played as a, a way of connecting with her in her last days. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Yeah. You know, in the reading, which as you said, I mean, I know it was a random two pages, but wow, what an articulation of so many other things about what it means to be um, an artist. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the lines was, um, it talked about the the artist sacrifices um, in the pages that you read. Eight. When you look back on the career you've had, what mm. do you notice about the sacrifices you've made? There are so many. There are so many. I mean, I've been homeless. I've been completely broke. I've been in trouble. I've um, given everything to my art. You know, like, you know, it takes everything. Um, I don't know, while all the other kids went out and partied and went out clubbing and whatever, I made art. Yeah. I turned up to art school early. I stayed to art school late. Um, I worked really hard. I 
and did what the art asked of me, you know. You know, the uh, the etymology of sacrifice is to, it actually means to make sacred. Oh. So what, what do you feel was made sacred? Um, what, through making the things I made or? Well, through, like, you know, there's that connection between what, what are you, what sacrifices have you made? And if you think of sacrifice as I've started to try and do as not so much as a, a loss or a, a giving away, but oh. as an act of making sacred by doing that thing. Oh, well, I suppose, um, I suppose the work is what you get. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it feels almost too lofty to call those things kind of sacred objects to me. Yeah. Um, but really, like, if, if you know, yes, what came out of the sacrifice were paintings, were performances, mm. were films, were exhibitions, photos. Yeah. How do you find your ideas? Oh, I don't I think this is getting a bit woo-woo, but I think ideas <laughs> find you. I, I, yeah. I think um, there's two ways of looking at this, but I... I like to believe in this idea of you're open to it. It kind of lands in your mm. head. It's not really me being clever. Maybe I'm just a bit receptive and I get a little whiff of something and then I follow it and it tends to kind of expand and yeah. then I find something else and then it leads to something else and then it all goes wrong and then I close down <laughs> that avenue and then try something else and, yeah, you know. So it's more experimenting on a whim than coming up with something clever well is there a lot of um it all goes wrong because you know when you look at artists and their output you don't tend to see the the dead ends and the cul-de-sacs you tend mm -hmm. to see the the finished outcome you know in your video behind you you've got your the happy balloon yeah. which, which is i imagine a, a reference to happy cloud which is one of your more famous uh installations yeah. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm reading up about Stuart and I'm at the happy cloud and I'm like, how did that happen? Yeah. I'm curious to know what's the role of um, failure making art and in your and in your success? Oh, it's everything. Yeah. It's absolutely everything because otherwise, look, if, you'd, if I'd made the perfect painting when I was eight years, 18 years old, I'm yeah. done. So <laughs> I'm always deeply unsatisfied some degree yeah. of the work is always going to be unresolved problematic mm. um and require more work yeah so, so there's two things like you can be scared of that or you can just lean into that and kind of embrace that and i love it i, I just i love it <laughs> i love it i love it because that's the source of it all yeah um, so pretty much they're all failures um which is kind of why I haven't really shown anyone any of the new stuff for about five or six years now, because, you know, it's just me and the work. People don't need that at the moment. So, yeah, there's more failures, way more failures. That's it. <laughs> right. Well, how do you know when a piece is, it can't be finished, because as you said, every piece is unfinished, but it's ready to be released into the wild? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, everything's different. So yeah. if it's like a sort of social intervention, like here in the UK, we had a thing um, where the culture minister had said, um, or the Chancellor of the Exchequer, sorry, had said, artists should retrain and get a different job during the pandemic. You know, that, that wasn't mm. a job. And there's this huge right. thing, artists should retrain and reskill. And 
I saw. And, and uh, to interrupt you, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is basically the finance guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah the, the, numbers the, the Minister guy. for Money, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the money guy, who's actually <laughs> now the Prime Minister, by the way. Right. In yeah. those days, it was the money guy. He, he basically said artists should retrain and reskill and get a job in cyber. We should all learn how to do internet stuff now. Right. Um, and we all thought that was terrible. So I opened um, an artist job centre in the centre of London and it parodied a job centre. And it had all these weird and wonderful jobs for artists. It's kind of installation, kind of happening thing. And and that was just off the moment. You know, that just came out in like a week or two. It was a response. So mm. that just kind of needed the time for that dictated when it happened. But then with something like a painting, I you know, that's really hard because yeah. they just get put in the back room and you know, come back out five years later and get fiddled with and then go back in again. Yeah. It's it it's you know I'm I'm not a painter but I am a writer Oops. and this idea of okay <laughs> when do I let go of this thing that I'm writing to offer it up to the world and the audience is you know you know that when you when you see it published or whatever you're like ah oh, that's a little disappointing or that's a a typo or I could have yeah. just phrased that better. Um, uh, there's always that though I mean yeah. and, and everything's but I think maybe we're the only people who see that in it right like, I, I believe that most people don't notice but I also yeah. think with the work and, and I don't know when to catch it but there's a peak when it is going to be the best it's going to be and if mm -hmm. you fiddle about with it anymore you're actually doing damage and it's about it, yeah. catching it at that bit mm -hmm. and I don't know. It's normally way earlier than I think it is. And, and I often right. go too far with it and regret yeah. it. How do you, knowing that you are a perpetually um, unsatisfied with the work, it's kind of the nature of being the artist who is Stuart Semple. Both. How do you, care for yourself there's a way that criticism of the piece can become criticism of you oh okay um well i think partly it's that idea that it you know it's inspiration that's come to me so i'm not that attached to it so that works both ways so nice. it wasn't really so it goes both ways so when it comes out really well it's not that i'm clever so but also when it goes badly it's not really wholly my fault it just kind of wasn't working i love that you today. hold that because so often people do it the other way. They're like, if it's good, I got lucky. And if it's bad, I'm a shit person. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. And, and there's a way you can beat yourself up with that. Yeah, it's not about me either way. Yeah. So, and there's always tomorrow, right? There's always another painting. Another... There's always another painting. So knowing that the work is coming to you, it's not really about you. Um, I, I want to come back to this kind of way. So um, something about... Where do you find the courage to to release it to the world? There is that moment of oh, take a breath, <laughs> put it yeah, out there, I don't, take another breath. Is courage the right word? I don't know. I mean, the the, the thing it depends what it is because yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm not scared of the reaction. Like I'm yeah. absolutely fine if people don't like it. I feel like I haven't served them properly and I've communicated wrong. Um, yeah, but I can live with it. I'm not scared of. Yeah. 
Um, but it depends what I'm doing. If it's a series of paintings, maybe when I've got 12 of them and they make sense together and they've got some sort of uh, semblance of it yeah. being an exhibition, it feels right that there should be a show of them. That kind of makes yes. sense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not scared of the releasing it or the sharing it. I mean, I started off when I was um, a teenager putting my work on eBay and I put three pictures a day up on eBay. And I started when I was... Um, 19 after my near death thing that I went through. Yeah. I put three pictures a day up for three years. So I put 3,000 artworks out into the world anyway right. at the start. So some of them were awful. I mean, they were terrible. <laughs> and they couldn't have been worse. So I kind of got that over and done with. Oh, I love that. Um, Stuart, one of your, one of the products that I love most about yours yeah. is Black 3.0. There it is. Yeah. Um, there it is. I've got a, I've got a, um, a jar of it and mm. um i love it for the story okay yeah <laughs> Will you, can you tell us the story about it yeah of course i can so the story around black 3.0 comes about because um back in 2016 the uh british indian artist anish kapoor very important guy if you don't know who he is He's probably worth about half a billion pounds. He's a very important artist, Sir Anish Kapoor. He bought the exclusive rights to a process to coat things in the blackest material ever made, which was called Vanta Black. And that stuff makes things you paint it on look like a black hole in space. 3D things go flat. It is weird. Anyway, he was the only artist in the world who could use that. And I thought that was really, really, well, just not very nice, really. So... (laughs) I have always made my own paints, um, yeah. a, bit like, a bit like Patty Smith, really. They couldn't afford them, same with me. Yes. I made my own. And I had this stuff that I made called Pink is Pink, and it's the pinkest thing you've ever seen. And I yes. thought I'd put that up. Right here. Yeah. So that's the stuff. I thought I'd put that on the internet as a piece of performance art, and you had to agree that you weren't Anish Kapoor and you weren't going to share it with Anish Kapoor to, <laughs> to buy it. And I saw it more as like a little sculpture I made in my studio, like a little multiple, like an artwork. Yeah. But but anyway, loads of people bought it and they got behind it and they kind of agreed. And then they started saying to me, look, you've got to make a black, you've got to make a black as good as his, an affordable black, a better black, an accessible black. So yeah. um, a lot of work went into it and it ended up in Black 3, which is a collaboration with about a thousand artists around the world, you know, we formulate it. And then yeah. we share it on a not-for-profit basis on, on my website and... Anyone apart from Anish Kapoor can use it as much as they like. <laughs> and that's the end. That's the story. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a secret agent of Anish Kapoor. I'm, oh, I'm, no. I'm, I'm finding my way around this. Um, uh, what can I tell you? Uh, you <laughs> I love that story. It. I love how it speaks to, you know, early on you talked about why fairness and democracy yeah. are important themes to you. And this feels like an action in the, for the sake of fairness and democracy. I hope so. I mean, I remember like being a kid and secretly drooling over art materials in the shop window. Yeah. And actually, I remember coming home one day and my mum actually put on my bed this set of watercolors, you know, the proper grown-up ones in tubes. She yeah, must yeah. have saved up for them. You know, we were a poor family. So, God, it meant so much. And to oh. tell people, I'm the richest artist in the world, you can't use this pain, it's just horrible. Yeah. How is that nice? <laughs> it's like, not nice. No. It's not nice. Um, you talked about Black 3.0 being a collaboration with a thousand other mm. artists. What have you learned about what it takes to be a great collaborator? Oh, well, that's that's to do with listening. 
and kind of understand that you're not always right. And mm. it's very easy to go into collaboration with a sort of fixed idea of what you want. But you really there needs to be a dialogue because you're there to learn. And mm. I've collaborated with loads of people over the years, like quite famous pop stars and fashion labels and things like that. And the ones that really work are the ones where it's a true meeting of the minds. Yeah. Uh, and both of you leave with more than you came with. Nice. Um, and that's when it works. And then when it goes wrong is when one person's telling the other person what to do. Because <laughs> like, right. nobody grows. You know, yeah. it's, it's rubbish. It's pointless. <laughs> How do you um, know what's there to, to be fluid on and what you need to stay firm on? Because it's, you know, it's like that give and take is great, but there's a sense that you can lose yourself or lose what you bring or lose your magic if you give too much away. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering how you, you know what's true and what's, um, or what's essential and what's open to kind of creative reinterpretation. No, I think it depends on what you're making, but I think in mm-hmm. essence, you know, I've had some experiences and I've seen some things work. So I have a strong sense of those. And yeah. I, I think I have quite a strong sort of, at least to me, sort of moral sense. So yeah. that dictates a lot. It's like, well, we can't do that. That would be kind of bad or wrong. So I, I have a sort of sense of that, I think. Mm. Um, so, you know, certain lines you just come across in, in, in those terms. Um, yeah. But really, I just want to be really receptive because it's actually, I, I, I watched an interview with Steven Spielberg the other day and he said something really interesting. He, he was talking about um, making Indiana Jones. And he said that he's always really receptive to anyone on set giving him an idea. And yeah. in that movie, Indiana Jones and in the front row, he's, he's teaching in a school and the girl in the front row closes her eyes and she's written love you on her eyelids. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And Spielberg says that um, that's his favorite moment in any of his movies. And like <laughs> the, like something like the cameraman's electrical assistant told yeah. him that idea, but oh. He put That's it right. in, and a good idea is a good idea, right? I don't. It doesn't need yeah. to be mine. Yeah. Um, but if I can facilitate it moving through and happening, then mm. I'm, I'm totally up for helping. You're reminding me of an interview I saw with uh, another film director, Ron Howard. Oh yeah. Who said he has a uh, what do you call it? Like a he has a I think he called it like the six and twelve rule, which he has his own opinion about things, yeah. and sometimes people come to him with ideas where it's like clearly a no. Mm. And sometimes they come to him where the idea is clearly a yes. Mm. But his rule of thumb is that if it's six of one and half a dozen of the other, <laughs> then he'll say yes to them because when people see their own ideas being enacted, whether you're the actor itself or somebody else on the crew, mm. there's some magic in it mm. being not just me doing the director's idea, but there's more to it than that. And I thought that was a very helpful idea, which is your bias should be to say yes, unless it's really a no. I love that. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try and say yes to things as yeah. well. You know, yeses move things forward, don't they? No shut they do. doors. So, how do you do? You, do you have to choose what your next projects are? Like you said, yeah. Is it A? Is it B? Is it C? And if you do. How do you make that choice now? Depends what you're doing um, yeah. and what stage I'm in. So like right now, I'm utterly committed to this new series of paintings that I've been working on tirelessly day in and day out. Nice. Um, and people do, you know, I, I'm in this 
very, very lucky space where people write in most days with quite exciting things. Um, and I could get really caught up in that and distracted and be all over the place doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Yeah. But, you know, my commitments to the art and mm. it's quite easy to say no when you're in the flow. But procrastination is a big thing because, <laughs> because painting's really hard. So yeah. everything can be much more exciting than the hard work of that. So I've had to call myself to account on that really big, <laughs> big time with you. I love, I love what you're saying there because I completely understand the the sudden appeal of re-vacuuming the house. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> exactly. I don't even like vacuuming. The house is already clean, but the alternative is to try and work out a sentence that I am finding it hard to write down. Exactly. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll get distracted yeah, no. by anything. And it's never um, as bad as you think. Once you get in the flow of it and actually sit down to write or paint, you're always glad you did it. Well, at least I think so. I, I find that too. The, actually, even just even if even if it's not actually productive on an objective level, well, there's something about I've done the work, and that's moved me along. Yeah. And next time I come back to the work, I'll be in a different place, and it will be in a different place, and we'll see what shows up then. Yeah, totally. Stuart, this has been such a great conversation and uh, I feel like we've only touched on some things, but I wanted to ask you as a final question. Yeah. Is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation? Mm, I've, yes, because what we didn't do was do my Patty Smith Maplethorpe story, which, oh. you should, which you should ask me about. I, do you have a Patty Smith, Maple, Robert Maplethorpe story you could tell us? Oh, that's so funny you should mention that. I do. Um, so, no, this is really weird. So I I really idolised Patti Smith and Maplethorpe yeah. for loads of reasons. And um, when I moved to London, one of my dear friends, um, Alison, runs a brilliant gallery. And she represented the Maplethorpe estate. And she was putting on a big Maplethorpe show. Obviously, sadly, Robert's passed by an old yes. um, and Alison said, oh, do you want to come to the show, to the opening, whatever. And I came to the show. And it was curated by David Hockney, who's also one of my heroes. Of so I'm there at the opening. Um, the David Hockney story is interesting because there's a thing there. But anyway, the, the Maplethorpe photos, they're just extraordinary. And there's a video piece um, there. And I climb into this sort of video room. So it's bright out. And I'm sat there and I'm watching this amazing video that Robert shot. I turn to my wife and Patty Smith just walks in. And just literally, she sits next to me, and there's no one else in the video. So I'm like watching Maplethorpe with oh. with Patty Smith in this room, and I'm like, "Wow, this is so weird! It's like all my dreams are coming true." I was so young, you know, yeah. and um, it's just a really beautiful thing. And then I came out of the booth, and Alison said, "Oh, do you want to meet David Hockney?" I thought, "Yeah, it's amazing." So I went into the back room, and there's David Hockney, there's Salman Rushdie, Patty Smith. And I'm like, what the hell? It's just like I've crawled inside <laughs> my cultural daydream here. And I start talking to David Hockney about art and stuff, because he's yeah. obviously one of my heroes. And we have this huge conversation. Well, I have this huge conversation. And then his assistant says to me, oh, he's turned his hearing aid off tonight. Like, what? <laughs> what an arsehole. Who goes out to an art show that you create and turns your hearing aid off so you can't hear anybody? I felt like a right mug. So, so that's my, my story. Um of my very quick run in with all that world, but I, I am excited to be three degrees of separation from all of those people. So thank you. I've just finished a reading a Salman Rushdie book actually you, as we uh, speak. So yeah, the Golden House, which was wonderful. Is it good? It's mm. excellent. Mm, I should write. It's truly I excellent. I haven't read Rushdie for a long time, but this is a story of um, uh, it's 
it's King Lear, but different. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah, I haven't yeah. read any for a while. Okay, yeah. I'll put it on the list. It's wonderful. I, I can recommend it. The inspiration to invite Stuart to the podcast came because I actually wrote about him in my book, How to Begin. In particular, I write about that episode with Anish Kapoor, the other artist, buying the rights to Vanta Black, the blackest black in the world, and Stuart's response to that. It wasn't just making an alternative black paint, but it was making it available to everyone and anyone except for Anish Kapoor. I thought this was a response that was so smart and also professional, but also funny. I think these are the characteristics of my favorite artists and activists. Smart, so finding a new way to give voice to something that matters. Professional, doing it at a level that is appropriate to the challenge at hand. I mean, if you're going to make an alternative black paint, it has to actually be a really good black, black, black paint. And finally, funny, holding something that serious lightly, you know, provoking and teasing and being persistent in all of that. I can see now that what annoyed me about the signs at Oxford University were how they were so exclusive. No entry unless you're this person. No walking on the grass unless you're that person. What I want to do is to find ways to make hidden resources and sources of power and wisdom and influence open to everyone. If you enjoyed my conversation with Stuart, I've got a couple of other artists that, actually interviewees that I might suggest. One of them is an artist, uh, Chadney Everett, How to Be an Artist. He is the one of the founders of a wonderful series of art installations around the US called, oh, I forgot what they call it, something Wolf. It's, a, it's an odd name. They literally pulled two bits of paper out of a hat to come up with the name of their collective. Um, and they're doing something really interesting in terms of democratizing and making provocative and enjoyable art in a way that certainly disruptive for how most art museums invite you to experience their art. And then the second uh, conversation I thought you might enjoy connected to this one was How to Be Alive by Madeline Dore. Um, she is uh, Australian, but also a world traveler, nomad really, and so thoughtful in terms of how she thinks about the world. And in fact, back in the summer, August, you know, exploration of the vaults, uh, Madeline's interview is one of the ones that we brought out. So you'll find that recently, if you haven't I heard her before. If you want to be in touch with Stuart, the best place to kind of get to know him and see him is on his Instagram account, which is Stuart Semple. Uh, S-T-U-A-R-T-S-E-M-P-L-E and his website is the same, stuartsemple.com and yes, you can buy those paints. I actually have little containers of the black, the pink and the white paints on my bookshelves even as we speak. Finally, thank you for listening. Thank you for passing the word around, for giving the podcast some love, for making this one of your favorite podcasts and I just finished by saying you're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>